Kai. I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. And this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Hello, everyone. This is John Moser with another edition of The American Idea. Uh, And uh, I'm very pleased to be speaking today on the subject of the atomic bomb with Richard B. Frank. Uh, Richard Frank is, uh, after he graduated from the University of Missouri in 1969, he went to Vietnam where he served as a platoon leader in the 101st Airborne quite an impressive uh, impressive feat in and of itself. He's better known today as an authority on World War II in Asia and the Pacific. Uh, his first book in 1990 was uh, A History of the Guadalcanal Campaign. Uh, he really came to national attention, I think, with his second work, Downfall, The End of the Imperial Japanese Empire, which was published in 1999. It has been heralded as one of the six best books in English about World War II. And that's an assessment that I can't disagree with, having read it myself. Um, He uh, uh, followed that up in March 2020 with the first volume of what will be a trilogy on the Asia-Pacific War. That first volume is called Tower of Skulls, and I have not gotten a hold of that yet, but I certainly intend to. Uh, Richard Frank, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for having me. So the atomic bomb and the the use of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945 has uh, in recent years been a matter of controversy. Was the use of the atomic bombs controversial at the time? That's a very interesting point. Uh, What's very difficult for Americans who uh, have been born in the last 50 years or so to understand is that for the first 20 years or so after the bombs were dropped, there was no real controversy in this country. It was generally accepted the bombs use was justified at the end of the war, saved an enormous number of casualties, both in Japan and the U.S. Uh, this all changed in the mid-1960s uh, when that uh, basic narrative was being challenged. Hmm. Uh, those challenges uh, between the new narrative and the old narrative clashed most spectacularly at the Enola Gay controversy in 1995. And for purposes of uh, what we're doing today, the important thing to remember uh, now is that sent from 1995 and uh, since then, we've gained a vast amount of additional information, both on the U.S. side and on the Japanese side, which reframes much of these events on both sides. And that's really what I'm working from now. I'm not going back uh, to use some of the older uh, incomplete evidence that was available for the first basically about 40 years after the war. What's the source of the controversy, if we could cover that very briefly? Uh, Well, the way I see the controversy, there's really two basic levels of it. One is sort of a moral issue about the horror of the bombs uh, just by themselves. And the second uh, basic area of controversy is sort of factual, you know, what exactly happened and why on both sides. Uh, On the moral issue, which I think really is is the most important one, certainly for today. I think the the very essential issue you need to understand is that to judge the moral issue, the two things you have to do is to count all the dead 
and treat all the dead as sharing a common humanity. And this gets back to a very fundamental point about the war at that time. And that point is that the number of Japanese civilians who died in what we call the Second World War uh, is a very tiny fraction of the number of civilians, overwhelmingly other Asians, predominantly Chinese, who died all over Japan's empire from Japan's actions. Mm. And the ratio is somewhere in the vicinity of for every single Japanese civilian death, there are something close to 18 other deaths, uh, about two-thirds uh, Chinese, the rest Asians uh, throughout uh, the rest of the uh, territories that Japan uh, conquered. Once you understand those basic numbers, you understand that what was happening in 1945 in August was not a question in which only the lives of Japanese civilians in two cities were threatened. It involved an enormous uh, number of other civilians throughout Asia whose lives had been imperiled, had been sacrificed, and continued to be imperiled at that time. So, so to the extent that the use of the atomic bombs shortened the war, they can be said to have saved lives. Now, we, we immediately think, well, it saves the lives of U.S. soldiers who might have had to invade, but it saved the lives of civilians on the continent of Asia. Uh, that's correct. And clearly, from the American political standpoint, particularly Mr. Truman's standpoint, I mean, his first obligation was to the American people, and their immediate focus was on the lives of their uh, sons and daughters who were uh, potentially going to die in the final stages of war with Japan, wherever that happened to go, including particularly an invasion. Uh, if you've dealt, as I have, with uh, scholars uh, in other Asian nations, uh, you'll uh, clearly understand that they view this as a deliverance that stopped what was mm. a, a horrendous level of death uh, and suffering that was in progress and had been in progress for quite some time. Uh, the way I figure it, using pretty standard ac academic sources, uh, China lost about 12 million civilians uh, during the war. That's based on the work of Dr. Ronna Miller, and that's the very lowest end estimate that he has. Uh, 12 million uh, over eight years, over 2,963 days, is literally 4,000 Chinese every single day the war went on. If you look at the number of deaths that occurred from December 1941, when Japan expanded the war going through South and Southeast Asia, you add somewhere between about 5.8 and another 6 million dead over 1,346 days, which is over 4,000 days. So basically, between December 41 and August 45, there are 8,000 Asians, overwhelmingly, who are not Japanese, who are dying every single day the war goes on, 240,000 per month. If you do the math on this, you mm. find that that translates into uh, about uh, 51 Hiroshima's and Nagasaki's in that period from December 41 to August 1945. If you don't understand that basic point, you cannot begin to grapple with the moral issues of the end of the war and the use of atomic bombs. That is a fascinating point. So maybe then we need to turn things around and look at things from the perspective of uh, the Japanese government um, and, and the, the more or less military regime that existed. We know the surrender came in August of 1945, but surely there was an understanding in the upper ranks in Tokyo well before that that the war was lost, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. In fact, we can pinpoint that uh, there was a secret war diary at Imperial General Headquarters, which was the top, it was the equivalent of the Pentagon uh, in Japan. And in July 1944, uh, that diary uh, admitted that the war was effectively lost. Well, 
but there's a big difference between the war being lost and an actual surrender. Uh, the problem from uh, the Japanese standpoint was that uh, no Japanese government had ever surrendered to a foreign power in the history of Japan, which by Japanese count was 2,600 years, and no Japanese unit had ever surrendered in the Asia-Pacific War. Uh, and there was this tradition, this uh, conviction, this warrior culture, which absolutely re rebelled at the very idea of surrender. Now, coupled to that was a very shrewd uh, strategic assessment. And this came in January 1945, where the Japanese recognized that the war situation was horrible and was only going to get worse if it continued in the current trajectory. So what they did was they uh, assessed the situation as follows. That those uh, impatient Americans would not be content to sit back and blockade and bombard Japan, which they had no uh, alternative. They believed that if they could meet and either defeat or inflict huge casualties on the initial American invasion of Japan, they could break the will of the American people to continue the war to unconditional surrender. And they had a complete misperception uh, of how many casualties they'd already inflicted on the U.S. at that time, but they adopted what they called this strategy called Ketsugo. It had a military and a diplomatic component, but they were sequential, not parallel. The key point was they did not believe they could get an acceptable peace from their standpoint unless they changed the military realities, and that was what they were going to do by meeting that initial invasion and defeating it or inflicting huge casualties. Then and only then would they go on to a diplomatic phase. And they correctly assessed that we were going to target Southern Kyushu. This was simply a matter of knowing our operational technique of uh, always making a landing within range of land-based air power, calculating that the land-based air power that was critical was on Okinawa, taking their dividers and, and, and calculating the range of American fighter planes to the homeland of Japan, which gave them Southern Kyushu looking for the fact that the U.S. would come to get air base sites and also naval support sites on Kyushu. And they looked at where the level terrain was, where air base sites existed or could be created. You look at a topographical map of Kyushu, that tells you exactly where a landing is going to be made. And they began a massive buildup on Kyushu. And we did not detect this until later, which is another part of the story. But basically, the military was quite confident that they had a winning combination to bring the war to a negotiated peace they could accept. When you said we didn't know this until later, we being the United States, at what point did we learn what kind of buildup there was? Well, that's that's a critical part of the story. And it's one, when I mentioned that you know the evidence since 1995 is critical, this is where this was released. We didn't release code-breaking uh, radio intelligence material until uh, starting in the mid-1990s. It continued for quite some time. It's an enormous body of evidence. But the most essential thing in that body of evidence was there were two main streams, uh, the first of which uh, was about military developments concerning Japan, and the second was diplomatic uh, elements. And now these were presented to top American policymakers, starting with President Truman, in a daily uh, summary. Uh, one was called the Far Eastern Summary, which was about the military end, and one was, one, uh, and one was uh, about the diplomatic end of it. And what these showed was, first of all, on the diplomatic end, anyone reading the exchanges by the Japanese, particularly to the foreign minister and uh, the, uh, the exchanges with the Japanese ambassador in Moscow, who was the main conduit for such diplomatic efforts that were being made. And these showed that they were completely unrealistic 
as the that very ambassador said to Japan, mm. that, you know, you're you think the Soviets are going to aid us? Uh, they have no intention to do so. If we're going to secure their help, we need to provide inducements, and the inducements he described coming from Japan in that respect were, you know, uh, you know, pretty little words with devoid of connection to reality. And then he kept coming back to, if you really want to end the war, you have to set, come up with a set of terms. He came back to that repeatedly. He could never get them. Meanwhile, beginning in uh, July, particularly, uh, we de developed intelligence indicating this enormous Japanese buildup on the ground in Kyushu and a tremendous buildup of uh, uh, aircraft, particularly kamikazes. Uh, essentially, when we were originally planning to go to southern Kyushu, we thought the Japanese were only going to have three divisions. By the uh, end of July, going into August, right when the decision was being made about using the bomb, we knew that there was a stupendously larger garrison. The numbers were ranging up beyond 600,000. The actual number was somewhere between 700 and 900,000. We were identifying new units almost every day during that period, showing a nightmare scenario that we'd be facing a situation, as one intelligence officer put it, we'll be going in at the ratio of one to one, and this is not a recipe for victory. So that intelligence information is perhaps the most important evidence that supported Mr. Truman's decision, but he and his government forfeited that evidence by preserving the security of the radio intelligence material. And had we had that from the beginning, this controversy, in my view, would never have gotten to the extent it has reached. This this is this is really important. I, I, I recall reading the minutes of a meeting. Was it in May or June, uh, involving General Marshall, Admiral Leahy, the president? You know, Truman himself was there, and they're putting forward estimates. And the estimate was, well, we could expect to lose. We, we're 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 going in with a force of seven hundred fifty thousand. We could probably expect a similar level of casualties to what we suffered in Okinawa which was about one third and this was on the on 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 the basis of what they thought the Japanese defense was going to be at the time but by the end of, of July of course those estimates of of casualties would have to be estimated considerably upward this whole uh, issue of the casualties has uh, become a, a very tangled scheme uh, the critical uh, issue to me is that there was there was no system for uh, estimating casualties in 1945 that was reliable. General Marshall himself called all of that speculation. If you go down into the deep depths of the records or whatever, you find that in fact most people who addressed the issue of casualties at the top political and military level, they didn't use ground uh, numbers. They they searched for analogies to some prior campaign, and that was predominantly what was presented to Truman at that meeting, which was on the 18th of June, 1945. Even so, and I go through this in downfall in some detail about several sets of ways of calculating casualties came before Truman, including the one of Admiral Leahy suggesting it's going to be about like Okinawa, which was not a very attractive, I mean, that's, that's talking over 200,000 casualties based on what they thought they were getting at that time. So uh, by late July mm -hmm. uh, into August, uh, basically, no no one was trying to do revised casualty estimates. They were looking at this horrifying buildup and realizing that whatever we thought before was totally invalid to what we were looking at now. And one of the things that's telling about this is that General Marshall thought the situation was looking so dire uh, that he actually sent a message to General MacArthur, who was going to command the invasion, uh, 
uh, on the 7th of August, 1945, which uh, asked uh, MacArthur, based on the intelligence uh, build of the, about the buildup, do you still think the invasion is viable? And MacArthur said he didn't really believe the intelligence and let's go ahead and do it. Well, Jim, Admiral King, Ernest King, the chief naval officer, who was adamantly opposed that there would never be an invasion of Japan on his watch, had been waiting for the moment to to basically bring on this huge collision between the Army and the Navy over the invasion strategy itself. And he had set this up by some actions he'd taken earlier in the year. And now when he saw that exchange between Marshall and MacArthur, he sent a message to the senior naval officer in the Pacific, uh, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz, and asked Nimitz to comment on that exchange. Well, I like to say that you never play cards with a sailor because they always have something up their sleeve. And what King knew, because there had been a back-channel exchange between he and Nimitz that no one in the Army had seen, in which Nimitz had announced in May that after two months of Okinawa, he could no longer support any invasion of the Japanese home islands. So King knew that by sending that message, he was going to trigger this big showdown battle between the Army and the Navy over whether an invasion was viable. The other thing mm. that Marshall did was he sent one of his staff officers to someone at the Manhattan Project, which was building the bombs, and asked them how many bombs they were going to have by the 1st of November, which was the scheduled date for the invasion. And the staff officer said that General Marshall believed that two bombs on Japanese cities would either force a surrender or no bombs on no further bombs on cities would do anything, that he wanted to preserve the uh, supply of atomic weapons to support what we now call tactical use to bolster the argument that we'd still go to Kyushu because he knew it was a losing argument based on the intelligence. So that's it's a, that's an entirely dramatic part of the story that just totally gets left out. Wow. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the to the the Japanese side of things for a moment. Um, what role did the emperor play in in the, in this, these discussions that were going on? You know, can we win the war? How do we get out of it honorably, et cetera? Well, the whole role of uh, Emperor Hirohito uh, is it's a, it's a whole separate controversy in itself. Uh, basically, it goes to what I would describe as the uh, basic function, dysfunction of the Japanese uh, political and military decision-making process. In fact, I would argue that of all the major combatants in World War II, the Japanese were the leaders in dysfunction in terms of decision-making uh, at the top level. The most fundamental reason for that goes back to the Meiji Constitution, which was modeled on the German, uh, Wilhelmian German Constitution, which made, mm -hmm. the armed, which made the armed forces independent of subordination to the legal government. The armed forces ostensibly only answered to the emperor. They were not only uh, constitutionally independent, but they gained the right over the years, first the Imperial Army and then the Imperial Navy, to appoint the key army and navy ministers in each cabinet. And if they did not want the cabinet formed, they could re uh, refuse to appoint those officers and collapse that proposal uh, for a cabinet. Or if there was a cabinet existing whose policies they disagreed with, they could have the army or navy minister resign and that would collapse the cabinet. So they had an absolute veto over anything the government was going to do. So it gets back to what did the emperor uh, see his role as. And from the time he became emperor in late 1925 until August of 1945, Emperor Hirohito chose the path of presiding, not deciding. He was held up to be uh, divine. 
the supreme leader infallible, and the Japanese had installed this cutoff between the emperor and governmental policies to preserve his infallibility. And what he did routinely was he uh, accepted what was presented to him by his civilian or military leaders as their proposed policies, and he sanctioned it. He frequently asked a lot of questions, good questions, and he was very well briefed, but he did not directly intervene to order any action mm -hmm. by the government for 20 years, except on one occasion in February 1936, when there was a coup literally under his nose in Tokyo that involved uh, assassination of members of his immediate household. And then and only then he put on his field marshal's uniform and went down and told the armed force commanders, you will suppress this rebellion. Up until August 1945, that was the only time the emperor had ever intervened. And he was standing there watching what was going on, becoming more and more alarmed as 1945 went on, but he had not intervened. And whether he would intervene was a big question because he was not entirely confident that even if he intervened, the armed forces would obey his order. So he couldn't, I mean, it was believed that he could not afford to identify himself personally with any major decision for fear that the decision would go wrong. That's is that, that that's what you're saying. That that's essentially how that's essentially how the the government was set up in Japan to insulate the emperor from responsibility that could you know basically uh, in, in, you know undermine his aura of infallibility and this enormous aura that surrounded the emperor is not only a political leader but as a religious leader uh, mm -hmm. as the head of the Japanese people. Uh, a descendant from the gods, and uh, all the Japanese people were his uh, subjects and his descendants also. So this belief of the Japanese uh, people of having this special divine sanction. Let's talk about alternatives to the atomic bomb. We've already discussed the blockade option and why it seemed by late July to be increasingly unworkable. Um, what other possibilities were there aside from the bomb? There really were uh, what I call uh, an unstable compromise between the American armed forces, the Army and the Navy, over how to end the war with Japan. And they really interestingly divided really over more of a political question than what you regard as a strictly military question. Uh, the Army believed the critical issue was time, that uh, the American people could not countenance a war that would go on for uh, a very long time. And they believed that the swiftest way to end the war was by invading the Japanese homeland. Mm -hmm. The Navy had an incredibly proprietary attitude towards war with Japan. They'd studied it since 1906, particularly between World War I and World War II. And part of that study examined the prospect of invading the Japanese homeland. And the Navy concluded that we'd never be able to project an expeditionary force across the Pacific that would uh, outnumber the Japanese and the, the home islands and that the terrain of Japan, everything that was not steep was soaked, would negate our advantages in firepower and mobility, and that any invasion of Japan would produce politically unacceptable casualties. And this was, as one wag once uh, uh, offered that this was genetically encoded in two generations of U.S. naval officers, that you never, ever, ever invade the Japanese homeland. Well, those two views clashed in the first part of 1945, and what came out was a compromise. The Navy, led by Admiral King, as I mentioned, agreed to issuing an order for that initial invasion of Japan. But when that order was issued in, well, it was April and May, there were a couple of steps in this, King 
wrote a memo to the other members of the Joint Chiefs and said, look, I'm only agreeing that we issue an order now. We will come back to visit the issue of whether we're actually going to invade Japan in August or September. And he wasn't thinking about atomic bombs. He was thinking about when the Navy would close and close in and clamp down a really close blockade against Japan and the Army Air Force program of bombing would, would reach a crescendo. From the Navy standpoint, based on the British and German experience of World War One, they viewed a blockade as being legitimate now, as it had not been in hundreds of years, to actually cut off the supply of food uh, to a nation. So their real aim in this was to threaten to kill or to kill millions of Japanese by starvation with the blockade. Mm. One mm. of the problems in the, in the history, you're, you'll see people citing admirals saying, well, we could have ended the war by an alternate means. They don't tell you that the alternate means were to basically kill millions of Japanese, mostly non-combatants from starvation. Yeah. yeah. I had also read that there was a, a suggestion that perhaps the, the the atomic bomb could be demonstrated on uh, a remote island just to show its power and then implicitly saying, this is your last chance. We're going to start using these on, on, on your cities if you don't surrender now. Why was that not explored further anyway? It was explored, but it was rejected, including by the leading scientists, uh, including Oppenheimer. Now, this, this really ties into, uh, very closely into, what was the actual Japanese reaction to the two atomic bombs? And the, the secret mm. to understanding this is to understand that the Japanese had their own atomic bomb program. It did not produce a bomb, but what it did produce was a very fundamental knowledge that producing the bomb involves creating fissionable material, and fissionable material is extremely expensive in time, money, and resources to create, and you're not gonna produce that much of it. So the Japanese understood that someone might be able to create an atomic bomb, but could they create an arsenal of such weapons? On the US side, from very early on, one of the advisors in the, in the program, an admiral named uh, William Purnell, said that to get the Japanese to surrender with atomic weapons, it will take two bombs. The first bomb establishes that we have an atomic bomb. The second bomb implies that we have an arsenal of atomic bombs. So mm -hmm. under any demonstration scenario, the Japanese, and I'll come to a moment about how they reacted to the real bomb, would have said, very interesting, let's see you do four in a row. It was a non-starter with respect to uh, Martin Bernstein, a historian I much respect, he, he entirely agrees that if you really understand what the Japanese understood about atomic weapons in 1945, there's no way a demonstration would have worked. Now, when the Japanese got word of the Hiroshima bomb and Truman announced it was an atomic bomb, one of the things I was really startled by when I was examining this was the immediate, the reaction of the Japanese armed forces was immediate. The Imperial Army reacted well, we won't concede it's an atomic bomb until investigation. The Imperial Navy said, well, maybe they have one atomic bomb, but they can't have that many of them. They can't be that powerful, or maybe they'll be dissuaded by initial pressure from using them. So this gets back to the basic issue of the single, the first bomb did not immediately impact the Japanese uh, military decision makers because this whole issue of whether they thought we really had more than one bomb. In fact, whether they, whether they thought we had even one bomb. The second bomb at Nagasaki, however, 
that totally changed the perception of what was going on. And after that bomb was dropped, suddenly there was the specter that we had an arsenal of atomic bombs. And the key point here is that Hmm. if we had an arsenal of atomic bombs, does that mean that the U.S. will not come and invade? If we didn't come and invade, the Japanese military had no realistic strategy except for the nation to die. And after the second bomb, the army minister, a general named Anami, who was the second most powerful man in Japan next to the emperor, he had been rejecting the notion that the first bomb was important. And now he's running around telling other policymakers, well, the Americans may have 50 atomic bombs and the next target is Tokyo. Now, that's a hell of an argument for continuing the war to convince your uh, other uh, decision leaders as to what to do. So, in, in yeah. fact, yeah. the Japanese Prime Minister Suzuki in December 1945, he basically tracked this whole thing. He said, you know, we were going along with Ketsugo or whatever here until you dropped the bombs and suddenly realized you might not invade. And then it was time to surrender. Before we continue with our discussion, I'd like to let you know about an outstanding set of programs that Ashbrook sponsors for high school students, the Ashbrook Academy. Do you know any students with an interest in American history, politics, economics, and literature? Do they enjoy being academically challenged and the thrill of engaging with different ideas and viewpoints? Hi, I'm Sabrina Maristella, Student Programs Coordinator here at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Academy is a series of summer courses for rising high school juniors and seniors. Held in person at Ashland University, the Academy immerses you in the American story like you've never been before. Since 2015, our approach has taken history out of textbooks and into students' lives with historical documents and conversations about those documents. If you are a rising high school junior or senior, or if you know someone who is, we invite you to learn more about our courses and apply today at ashbrookacademy.org. So let's talk about a, a bit of a counterfactual. We know that one of the sticking points on the Japanese side uh, was was a fear that if they if they lost the war, they would lose the uh, the kokutai, right? The uh, the imperial system that had prevailed for thousands of years. Um, we know that ultimately the United States allowed that. Had it been made clear to the leadership in Tokyo in July of 1945 that we will accept your surrender and we will guarantee that you can keep your emperor, might that have caused it? Would that have been enough to get the Japanese to uh, to surrender without the use of the atomic bombs or an invasion or anything else? Like that? Um, that's a very very good question. Uh, the answer is um, is somewhat complex. Americans recognize, at least some of the Americans, particularly uh, Secretary of War uh, Henry Stimson and a senior diplomat, uh, Joseph Grew, um, thought that that whole issue of the Japanese being assured about the maintenance of their imperial system or even retention of the emperor was essential to get the Japanese surrender. The problem within American ranks was the way it was viewed was that Japan had launched this horrendous war of aggression across Asia, Southeast Asia, killed millions and millions of people. And the three pillars behind that effort had been militarism, the Shinto religion, and the emperor system. And so 
from the standpoint of the people who, from our perspective today, we call them the liberals, they thought it was an anathema to guarantee the emperor's position and probably the uh, imperial institution. Now, what actually happened was that we had been uh, going through the whole issue of what unconditional surrender would mean. And in the summer of 1945, we reached the point where uh, one of the alternatives that actually was in effect examined was, could we use diplomacy to end the war without further military action, including the invasion? And this led to the drafting of what was called the Potsdam Declaration, which was issued on the 26th of July, 1946. Now, this, the impetus behind this was very much American domestic, domestic political opinion, which was anxious to end the war as swiftly as possible with at least American loss. Uh, the difference between the Potsdam Declaration and what happened to Germany is illuminating. Unconditional surrender in Germany meant a blank check. The Germans got no guarantee of any term whatsoever in their surrender. It was unconditional surrender with no terms whatsoever. What the Potsdam Declaration did was provide what you might call a, a, a second version of unconditional surrender, which is to say, here are the terms, there will be no negotiation. And they set out a series of guarantees, like for instance, the uh, Japanese people, uh, would not be held individually accountable. It would be the leadership that would be held accountable. They would be free to return home and go about their business. Uh, we also expressly addressed the issue of what form of government the Japanese would have. And after several permutations uh, were gone through, we reverted back to basically the standard that was used in the Atlantic Charter, which was that after a period of occupation, where we guaranteed the Japanese would be democratic and, and demilitarized, then the Japanese people themselves would be free to choose their own form of government. And that statement did not include any provision that they would not be able to maintain an imperial institution, that they would not be able to maintain the emperor. Uh, some of the Japanese picked up immediately on the fact that effectively uh, that's what was being guaranteed. And the big kicker in all of this was discovered by uh, a historian at the University of uh, Washington State, Mariko Kawamura. Uh, when the Japanese go through these permutations between the, uh, the 10th and the 14th of August about whether to surrender or not, the emperor had intervened. And he uh, originally, they sent a, a message to the U.S. saying, you know, we're going to accept the Potsdam Declaration, except that uh, it will not compromise the prerogatives of the emperor's sovereign rule which actually meant in reality that the emperor would be supreme over the occupation commander. And we sent a note back saying that no, the emperor and the government would be subordinate to the occupation commander. There was resistance to accepting that. The emperor in his discussions with his principal aide, a fellow named Quito on the 13th of August, at that point says uh, he now believes that no matter what the Americans wish, even if the Americans wish to continue with the imperial institution, if the Japanese people don't support it, uh, it will not continue. And therefore, I am prepared to submit the fate of the imperial institution and, in fact, his fate to the vote, the views of the Japanese people. Now, what okay. is startling about that was this is this is the Potsdam uh, Declaration term, that Japanese people will be free to choose their own form of government. And the emperor on the 13th mm. of August is realizing that that's what's acceptable to him. So... 
that's that makes sense. That's uh, that's part of that story. Yeah. So we get up to uh, nine August nineteen forty-five. That that on that day, the second atomic bomb is dropped on on Nagasaki. On that same day, the Soviet army invades uh, Manchuria in honoring its pledges from Yalta. That muddies the, the 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 issue of what ultimately caused the surrender, does it not? I know there are some historians who have claimed that the, the Soviet intervention was uh, was more responsible. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you're exactly right. And basically, the controversy that has existed from the mid-1960s uh, up until re relatively recently uh, presented uh, the options uh, for explaining the Japanese surrender as either between the atomic bombs or Soviet intervention, you know, and uh, the idea that Soviet intervention alone was enough to cause the Japanese surrender, of course, implied that the atomic bombs had not been necessary, and therefore, you know, they were questionable, both practically and morally. When I wrote Downfall, I was plowing through uh, the evidence we had, and one of the things that's ironic about the Japanese side of the story is that after the Japanese announced they were surrendering, they had uh, a number of days before the occupation began, and they engaged in wholesale destruction of records, or they took records and hid them and then claimed they'd been destroyed. So we didn't know for a long time, and in fact, the record on the Japanese side was was never complete, except in one respect, and that was the diplomatic intercepts, because the Japanese had no idea those were being intercepted and read, and those are key to understanding what the Japanese were really thinking or whatever here at that time. What I also found was that there was a third factor involved. This was referred to many times by various Japanese figures, and I, I give you a list and downfall of, of the number of times that this was mentioned. It went under the euphemism of the domestic situation. And this was the idea that the leadership, especially up to and including the emperor, had believed, basically because of the trajectory of the war to that point, the bombing, the blockade, the food shortages, which were going to get uh, much worse towards the end of the year with the uh, with the fall rice crop. The pro we did not look promising. It was, in fact, going to be a disaster. And they were mm -hmm. fearful that this was going to lead to a domestic upheaval, a revolution that would topple not only the emperor from the throne, but the whole imperial institution. And this was referred to as the domestic situation. And this is the third factor. Now, what's interesting and telling about this is that after the Japanese surrender, or the process of doing this, the Navy minister, a fellow named Admiral Yone, tells one of his subordinates that, and this is pretty close to a quote, he says, uh, in a way, the uh, atomic bombs and Soviet intervention are gifts from the gods, because now we don't have to admit that the real, the real reason we're surrendering is the domestic situation. So, and... Uh, Dr. Kawamura, uh, uh, in her uh, analysis in this uh, excellent book, Emperor, Emperor Hirohito on the Pacific War, she says that was the fundamental reason that Japan really surrendered. It was, quote, the domestic situation. That's what convinced the emperor more than anything else that the war should end. Now, I would add that that said, mm -hmm. you still had the problem of getting the armed forces to comply, right? And that's why I think the atomic bombs, even under that scenario, are indispensable because they basically show the Japanese armed forces that we won't come and invade 
they have no viable strategy. It also is an impetus to the emperor's decision because we know now, and I had been skeptical about this initially, we know now that the emperor met with the foreign minister on uh, the afternoon of August 8th, that's two days after Hiroshima, before Soviet intervention on Nagasaki, and said the war has to end now. And we've had uh, one of the pieces of evidence we received now since the emperor died is confirmation that that took place and that was the gist of that conversation. So he'd already decided to end the war. But once again, you have to understand that from where he's coming from, he's not 100% sure that even his order will get Japan to surrender. I'm going to go back to this about this uh, your point about the domestic situation. We don't normally think of Imperial Japan as a place that uh, worried too much about uh, about the opinion of the emperor's subjects. But in a way, this makes sense. The amount of attention that was paid to broadcast propaganda, to posters exhorting people all the time uh, to do their duty suggests that this was a regime that was extremely sensitive to what was going on at the public level. Is that, is that correct? Yes. As a matter of fact, a key part of the evidence on this is that the Kemputai, the secret police, uh, and some other police were monitoring public opinion. And they were picking up these signs like graffiti and all kinds of other things. Now, to be honest, I th I think that what they were picking up then was sort of the, the, the preliminary low-level uh, manifestation of this sort of here. And what the Japanese leadership was looking at was not what the situation was in July, but what it was likely to be by October, November. That's when they perceived that the real crisis would be hit. So, you know, uh, it, it is, and it is something that initially none of us would have thought that, we, you know, this regime, which seemed to be you know, so thoroughly uh, established, would have any fear about what the domestic population thought. Well, it turns out that we have a lot of evidence right. from a lot of sources, including this uh, point about the emperor himself uh, saying, you know, it's, you know, if the Japanese people don't agree to keep the institution and me, then, you know, it'll go away. So let's get their view on this yeah. over here. Let me uh, uh, raise another point that some historians have made uh, that Truman's final decision to drop the bomb was perhaps motivated less by uh, by the need to to bring Japan to its knees and perhaps more as a as a means of impressing the Soviet Union as there were already signs of problems in the relationship between the United States and uh, and the USSR ones that would obviously harden into the Cold War not long afterward what do you think of that view yeah it's an it's an interesting point and it's been a controversial point and it's you know it's um sort of a, a matter of a holy writ in some people's view that Truman was really motivated by intimidating the Soviets. I think the best formulation of what really was going on in Truman's mind was by uh, uh, Dr. Martin Bernstein of Stanford, uh, who I, he was a mentor to me and uh, an invaluable source of insight on just about anything you can imagine. Uh, and what, uh, what Bart said was that, uh, acknowledged that what's clear now, Clearly, uh, we realized that there were serious problems in dealing with the Soviets. Most of these emanated from what was going on in Europe in the first part of 1945, as the war ended and the Soviets overran Eastern and Central Europe, and particularly over Poland or whatever here. So the issue of a contentious relationship with the Soviet Union uh, was clearly manifest, was clearly on the minds of American leaders. But as Bart put it, uh, that may have been on their mind 
But basically, the use of the atomic bomb, to the degree it would have uh, provided any leverage against the Soviet Union, that was simply a bonus. But the real reason was to end the war with, you know, without further American casualties or loss in 1945. Uh, the fact that it would have also some possible impact on the Soviets, and what impact it really had is another question, uh, was not a material factor moving it. Uh, in fact, if the Soviet Union had not, ex not existed, uh, the bombs uh, still would have been dropped because the whole basic issue was ending the war with Japan. And as I mentioned, by late July, 1st of August, uh, 1945, you know, uh, the invasion strategy looked like it was going to be a bloodbath, probably unsupportable bloodbath. You know, what, what do you do at that point? Use every weapon in, in your arsenal. And the further point that's been made is that, you know, had the war gone on and uh, supposedly gone on to an invasion or some other thing, the notion that we had at our hands weapons that could have ended the war earlier with fewer American losses would have been politically uh, dynamite in the U.S. Uh, would have been completely unacceptable to the American people to believe that we could have ended the war without further American loss, and we didn't use it. Well, we're uh, uh, coming to the end of our time together. I'm, I'm wondering if, the, if there's anything else you'd like to add about this fascinating subject. Well, I, you know, I don't at all dispute the fact that we should uh, contemplate uh, this. Uh, and we should uh, discuss this or even argue about it earlier. But I think if you really understand, first of all, the moral framework of this, that this was not simply a, an issue about the life or death of Japanese civilians in two cities. Mm -hmm. This was about the death and the enormous death toll of civilians throughout Japan's empire that had been ongoing and were continuing literally on a daily basis in August 1945. If you understand that moral framework, I think you'll have a sober way to approach the whole number of factual issues about this. Uh, I think it's also an object lesson in just exactly uh, how Mr. Truman and his administration, those individuals had to make decisions. All of the rest of us can be mighty thankful that we were never confronted with mm. ourselves. Mm. Richard Frank, thank you so much for, uh, for spending time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.